Thank you, choir. Wish I could have been there. Yes. Well, uh, what do you think when you get to church on a Sunday morning and you find out, well, you're preaching? Just kidding. Just kidding. Well, by the way, I'm, I'm, uh, well, I'm Garland Young, and I'm here to preach today. <clears throat> Please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Habakkuk chapter 2 for a brief passage. <clears throat> The second chapter of Habakkuk, and we're reading verses 18 through 20. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture for this morning. <clears throat> reading of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. What use is an idol once its maker has shaped it, a cast image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in what has been made, though its product is only an idol that cannot speak. Alas, for you who say to the wood, wake up, to silent stone, rouse yourself, can it teach? See, it is gold and silver plated, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord, but the Lord, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of God for us today. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <clears throat> In his book, The Wounded Healer, the Catholic theologian Henri Nouwen tells a story about from ancient India, four brothers are set out separately to master a single task. And after years of practice, they come together and compare notes. The first brother said, I perfected the process whereby I can create the flesh of an animal if I only have a single bone. The second brother replied, I can go farther than that. I can, if I have a bone with the flesh of any animal, I can recreate its skin and hair. The third brother said, well, I can go even farther than that. If I had the bone from a single animal and its flesh and its skin and hair, I can grow all of its limbs. And the fourth brother said, I can do even better than all of you if I had the bone from a single animal and its flesh and its skin and its hair and its limbs, I can give the animal life. So they decided to collaborate on this project. They found a single animal bone in the jungle and from it they crafted its flesh, its skin, its hair, and its limbs. But unfortunately, the animal that they decided to create was a lion. The newly alive lion shook out its mane, took one look at the four brothers, and promptly killed and ate them all. This is the challenge that idolatry places upon us. We have used our extensive God-given abilities to create all sorts of things that will come to master us and in the end destroy us if we don't keep them in their proper place. In today's text, Habakkuk chides idolaters as worshipers of stone and metal. Deaf and mute, these, these inanimate objects cannot speak to our needs or our desires. They can't even conceive of what we want, let alone talk to us about them or respond to our wants. The sin of idolatry plays a very important role in the Bible, as many of you know. 
and its prominence is due primarily to the Ten Commandments, the first two of which prohibit all forms of idolatry. In Exodus 20, the definition of idolatry found there seems to be that we are forbidden from worshiping, quote, a graven image. But that limited definition has always struck me as a bit incomplete. Worshiping hunks of wood and stone, I mean, who of us does that today? The early church father Augustine provided some illumination here by commenting that idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshiped. Martin Luther defined idolatry further as the misuse of anything in the world as though it were God. Luther recognized that whatever we set our heart upon supremely serves as our God, regardless of whether we're the most devout Christian or even if we're the most strident atheist, we all have a God. Another way of understanding idolatry is to see it as a form of displacement and replacement. The one God of the universe, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is indeed and has always been our God, but our sinful exercise of free will allows us to displace God and to replace the Lord with some other thing as our ultimate pursuit. And that thing becomes the center of our existence. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, the pastor Tim Keller commented that an idol, quote, is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Anything you seek to give you what only God can give, unquote. Idolatry has a long <clears throat> tradition in human experience so perhaps as long as there have been humans, there have been those of us who've succumbed to the temptation to worship the creation rather than the creator. Indeed, in ancient Judaism, idolatry was the fundamental sin from which all other sins stemmed. It was the basic human error. We see the primacy of monotheism in the Bible in Exodus chapter 20. In the first two of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me, required the worship of Yahweh, God, exclusively. And the second commandment, you will not make for yourself an idol or a graven image, serves it as a companion to the first commandment. The prohibition against idolatry began with the Israelites being prohibited from worshiping the idols of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were the tribes who in the time of Moses occupied the promised land that God had promised to the Israelites. But the second command also forbade the creation of images of Yahweh, implying that the true God of Israel could not be manifested in any sort of image or physical representation. This form of the prohibition later led some in Christianity and Islam to the trend we call iconoclasm. Christians became concerned that attempts to depict the divinity of Christ in images or art or sculpture was a form of idolatry and so it was forbidden in those traditions. The tendency of many Baptist churches today not to have any religious art in their worship spaces, including this building, is a case in point. And for Muslims, as you know, any artistic depiction of any religious person or symbol in a worship space is strictly forbidden. So it's easy for us to think that these forms of idolatry are, while true, they're, they're, they're kind of out of style. We, we think we, perhaps we've moved beyond those. And most Westerners would think and agree that it's impossible to render God in any sort of physical image. 
for the most part then, we modern folk tend to dismiss idolatry as the relic of a bygone age when superstitious people thought that gods really did exist in the forms of wood and stone and metal. And not only Habakkuk, but other biblical prophets bitterly condemned the worship of idols as foolishness and sacrilege. In chapter 44 of Isaiah, the prophet lampoons this idea of idols. He says there's the craftsman who cuts, off a block, cuts up a block of wood and then takes half the block of wood to heat himself by the fire, and the other half the block of wood he makes into an idol, and then he bows down and worships it. Where's the sense in that? But in reality, many ancient peoples didn't actually believe that a block of wood was literally their god. Instead, they believed these gods did actually live in a spiritual realm that was parallel to the world of our physical experience, and the idols that they fashioned were simply places where those gods chose to dwell. We find this form of worship in modern Hinduism, where in Hinduism, a grand variety of physical objects can represent gods of various sorts. But today, we might think that we've moved beyond this. Surely idolatry is a foolish practice that we've grown beyond, right? Not by a long shot. Believe me, idolatry is as live and well as it's ever been, even after we exclude the primitive forms of idolatry that we've just described. We might distinguish between three basic forms of idolatry. First, the simplest form of idolatry is what we might call physical idolatry. This form of idolatry includes worshiping the blocks of wood and stone that we described before. And in modernity, we may have laid these aside, but there are other forms of physical idolatry that are still great temptations for us. We might idolize nature itself. Witness the guy who says, I don't need to be in church on Sunday morning. I worship God through nature out there on that lake. We might idolize some physical characteristic of human experience, such as beauty or sex. We might worship various material goods, such as money, even genuine bodily needs like food or clothing or shelter can become objects of worship. And we're always looking for bigger, better, and more. And just like our ancient counterparts, some of us actually do worship physical representations of God. Some of us identify God with a particular location or even some physical object we view as a talisman. We might view this worship space as an idol, potentially. The second form of idolatry is a little more complex. We might call the second form relational idolatry, maybe even attitudinal idolatry. We often idolize various forms of relationships with others in ways that can actually replace a healthy relationship with God. Some people long for love and acceptance so much that they will do anything to acquire it including engaging in unhealthy relationships that they believe falsely will bring them fulfillment, but in reality bring them only pain. Alternately, some of us make self-loathing our idol. Convinced of their lack of self-worth, some subconsciously sabotage themselves and their relationships because of an ill-conceived conviction that they don't deserve success, that they don't deserve happiness, that they don't deserve companionship. Still, there are others in our world who carry the burdens of griefs and beliefs that they've been systematically wronged by others. 
and they can never see beyond that desire for recompense and revenge so as to comprehend the power of grace in a person's life. They're stuck, in effect, with that idol. Further, the gods of fear and control assail us all more and more today. The news media do much to empower these false gods, convincing us that our first responses to other people should be fear and the desire to control, shoot first and ask questions later. But we can't explain this phenomenon simply by using the media as a whipping boy. This idolization manifests itself in fear in our modern culture, a culture that's awash in guns, torn by violence, starved for trust, and controlled by public figures who will exploit fear as a means of controlling others. The idolatry of fear is something that we're mostly guilty of. Almost all of us are. The great preacher Charles Finney distinguished between the fear of the Lord, the Bible extols as a virtue, and self-centered fear that is mostly concerned with our own personal survival and earthly striving. But there's a third form of idolatry that's even more sinister, more subtle, and more insidious. <clears throat> it's insidious because this third form actually takes the virtues of life and turns them into idols that replace God. These idols might look like good and virtuous things, but they're actually moral wolves in sheep's clothing that draw us away from the Lord instead of toward God. For lack of a better term, and I couldn't think of anything better to call it, let's call these forms of idolatry virtuous idolatry. Can't think of what else to call it. This form of idolatry takes, involves taking what is virtuous about the spiritual life and transforming it subtly into something that's destructive. At this level, even practices that we laud as spiritual and godly can devolve into idols if they replace a relationship with God that's based upon love and grace. So, for example, we might, we might be very generous, but it's possible we could even idolize our generosity, whether to the church or generosity to some other cause. We might value our Christian morality so highly that it replaces our relationship with God, and we're willing to lay relationships with God and with others on the altar of sacrifice to the idol of moral, moral, moral behavior and belief. Perhaps it's religious orthodoxy that is our God. And we're so faithfully, faithfully devoted to religious orthodoxy that we feel obliged to shame and reject relationships with others with whom we disagree theologically. Perhaps we even make an idol out of our own guilt, out of our own shame. Do you ever know somebody who is like that? They wear their shame as a badge of honor, and every time you talk to them, they're talking about how all the bad things that they've done, and how it becomes an idol for them. Last, many in our culture have made idols out of humanity itself, in which our own beliefs and perceptions automatically valid just because they're ours. It's ours, it, it, it's, it's mine, I believe it, therefore it must be real, it must be good, it must be acceptable. Someone has widely, wisely commented today that today's idols are more in the self than they are on the shelf. And that's probably true. Whether it's absolutely true, I'm not certain, but it's obviously true that the most destructive idols that there are 
reside inside us and they masquerade as virtues. In J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, the evil Lord Sauron crafts a ring that endows whoever wears it with great power. But the problem with this ring is that it will simultaneously enable the evil Lord Sauron to control the wearer of the ring for its own evil purposes, no matter how moral the wearer is, no matter how righteous he is. The ring will corrupt its wearer no matter how lofty the wearer's intentions. In Tolkien's books, the various wearers of the ring seek to use its power for all kinds of noble purposes, like freeing slaves or defending their homeland or punishing the guilty. But inevitably, the ring distorts those worthy goals into idolatrous proportions. Hence, the various wearers of the ring will stoop to any means to achieve these worthy goals, even to the point of committing great evil in order to achieve good ends. This is the most dangerous prospect of idolatry. It causes us to lose sight of the one true God we serve and replace God with some other priority, including priorities that could otherwise be good and worthy, but they aren't the one true God of the universe. Habakkuk's solution in verse 20 of today's passage is so simple, it's so terse, that it's so quick, it's easy to miss. The Lord is in his holy, holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In the Bible, silence typically was used to denote two things. It might be used to denote shock. Sometimes in the Bible, when a shocking thing takes place, everyone falls silent. Otherwise, in the Bible, people tend to fall silent when they're in the presence of something or someone that is supremely important. In Habakkuk, the silence in this passage probably meant to communicate both reverence and shock in the presence of the Lord. Of all the thoughts, pursuits, and priorities of human beings, only the Lord sitting enthroned on God's holy temple is worthy of our worship and highest devotion. Luther and others were right. Our God is whatever or whomever we trust ultimately for our health, our happiness, and our destiny. No matter how much we profess that we really do believe in God, no matter how much we claim that we trust Christ for our salvation, it is the gods that we make that we tend to worship and the gods that we love that we tend to serve. By contrast, revering the eternal Lord alone and putting our faith and trust in the Lord alone is simpler than the convoluted complicated, deceptive versions of idolatry we've examined today. For a truly pure love for God, a truly pure devotion to God is the simplest and yet the hardest quest of our spiritual life. It's so simple that we usually miss it. We Christians fulfill this quest by expressing our love for God through a commitment to Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God showed love for us even when we were most unlovable even when we demonstrated devotion to every idol but God. In 1860, Anna Bartlett Warner was asked to compose a poem for her sister Susan Warner's Sunday school class of children. 
The Warner sisters have been co-writing a novel entire, entitled Say and Seal. In one scene of the book, a child uttered the words, Jesus loves me on her deathbed, immediately before passing away. Anna used that scene to pen the wonderfully simple rhyme that became the hymn, Jesus Loves Me. Now, some of the, hymn, some of the words to the hymn, Jesus Loves Me, make us squirm. Make us wonder whether they're really good for children. They were originally an attempt to allay a small child's fear of death. So here's some of the words of Jesus loves me that make us a little uncomfortable. Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm very weak and ill. From his shining throne on high comes to watch me where I lie. Jesus loves me. He will stay close beside me all the way. If I love him when I die, he will take me home on high. Those words might strike us, folks, as needlessly morbid, and we might hesitate to have our children pray them. As a matter of fact, since its original publication, some edited the verses of the hymn, Jesus Loves Me, so that they don't mention death so bluntly. Here's a modern rewrite of that last verse, and it reads like this. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Then his little child will take up to heaven for his dear sake. But in the day and age of the original poem, many more people died in childhood than do today. People didn't probably, probably didn't see that poem in such a macabre light. Death was an impending reality for everyone in that age, young and old, rich and poor. In 2020, in the United States, the mortality rate, infant mortality rate was 5.6%. But in 1860, approximately 20 to 25% of infants never saw their first birthday. The amazing thing about the simplicity of Jesus Loves Me is the childlike simplicity of its faith. As is the case with a child's faith, there is no pretense, there, is, there are no complex rationalizations of why faith is difficult to grasp or to retain. It's simply, I trust Jesus to take care of me. That's the solution to idolatry. Not a complex set of theological arguments that lead us to recognize all other gods as false, but a simple, direct trust in Jesus to care for us. God's only Son as the only one who can care for us and save us when life and death are at stake. Jesus loves me. Let's sing about that right now. <laughs> 